and welcome. I'm Will, and I'm Alicia. This is Enter the Rabbit Hole. Each week, we dive into and dissect the weird, the momentous, and the downright interesting. And today, we're covering Esperanto. Yeah, E is for Esperanto.、Uh, Alicia, how are you doing? Uh, I'm fine. Yeah, Esperanto is a pretty easy language. That's the headline for this one. Yeah, supposedly. Supposedly, if you want to learn a language, Esperanto might be the one for you because purportedly it's one of the easiest languages to learn. Although I will say, for me, this has been a more difficult episode to think about because we always pick these subjects, and I always say, okay, well, this next one's going to be an easy one. This next one's going to be kind of a slam dunk. It's going to be open and shut. And I think it's because with some of the other topics that we've covered in the past, that it, it's been Relatively open and shut, or we we could talk about what we know up until this point, and yet Esperanto. For one thing, it's been around a lot longer than I thought it had been. I thought it had kind of died out a little bit. It hasn't, and it it's got legs, Alicia. It's got legs. I think it could potentially become something else and go a lot further. So yeah, I thought this was going to be a really easy one to research and talk about, and it's been quite the opposite. I think for me, the most interesting part of Esperanto has been the background information, and why it was created, and all that other meaty stuff that we'll get into in a little bit. But first, what is Esperanto? Yeah, good question.、Uh, do you wanna do you wanna start us off? So Esperanto is、uh, a conlang. <laughs> Look at me, I know all the terms.、Mm. Um, That's basically an invented language. Yeah, conlang being a portmanteau of constructed and language. So,、okay. a language that people have made artificially instead of the language that we speak, for example, which has come out organically. Sure. Some famous examples of conlangs are Klingon,、mm-hmm. uh, Dothraki. Yeah, Elvish. Yep, definitely.、Um, basically, it's not just. Words in like a a TV show that they might throw in as like a fake language. It's a real language that has grammar rules and vocabulary and structure. Not only that, but、uh, L. L. Zamenhof, the guy that we're going to be talking about in a moment, he actually he termed Esperanto as being an auxiliary language. So I think it's important to think of it in that way. Although there are some people in the world who do speak Esperanto as a first language. His vision was that this wasn't something to do away with people's native languages. It's something that they were going to speak in addition to whatever language that they were born into. Esperanto is a language that has some pretty lofty goals for、yeah. a language. One of them being world peace. Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna start out with a mission statement, world peace is about as ambitious as it gets, right? And has it led led up to that, Alicia? Are we spoiling things here? Well, I I don't know if I would be spoiling things、uh, to say that、um, the world is still pretty much trash. Yeah, so we did. So we didn't get that world peace that we we're、mm. looking for. Unfortunately,、no. it's、uh, still in the back. Somebody's looking for it. Somebody is.、Uh, somebody's working on that as a side project.、Mm. Uh, but they've they've just they've got a lot going on right now. So currently, our global language is English. We are native speakers of English. We're pretty lucky, but it is a pretty hard language to learn, and we should know that because we are English teachers.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, just look at 
the different pronunciations of the GH sound, right? It could be a silent sound, it could be a sound, it can be a yeah. So if you're a non-native English speaker, I mean, yeah, life has not been made easier for you in trying to adopt what is currently the lingua franca. And of course, English is a really difficult language to learn. As some people say, uh, English is three different languages wearing a trench coat pretending to be one language, right? It's, it's so bastardized and it's got so many different roots. How could it be anything apart from a complete mishmash of different languages? And really, the reason it's our global language is, you know, because England took over a bunch of other places, pretty much the entire world. Yeah, and then following on from the British Empire, we've had... Da, 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 Americans! Some, yeah, something of like an American empire. Some people theorize that we might be seeing this period of English dominance coming to an end. A lot of people thought that the, the 21st century was going to be the century of China. That remains to be seen. But suffice it to say, I mean, even if you are planning on studying Chinese instead of English in order to get ahead. Again, best of luck. Uh, we'll, we'll cover that a little bit later on. But suffice it to say, if you are trying to learn one of these languages as the lingua franca, then you're going to have your work cut out for you. Which leads us nicely into Esperanto. Uh, Esperanto was created by a Polish ophthalmologist? Op- ophthalmologist? An eye doctor. An eye yeah. doctor. Named L.L. Zamenhof in 1887. I'm gonna say up top, I am uh, so frustrated because in preparation for this we watched uh, a bunch of different YouTube videos about Esperanto and the funniest joke about this man's name has already been said I think uh, in the Human Interest channel on YouTube and they covered Esperanto uh, so they've already said that L.L. stands for Ladies Love Zamenhof so Oh, guys, <laughs> I, I wanted that low-hanging fruit so badly. I just, I love the idea of this uh, Polish 19th century ophthalmologist, his face superimposed over LL Cool J's body on like the cover of like Mama Said Knock You Out. Um, but yeah, he, he was a Polish eye doctor as opposed to a 90s hip hop star turned uh, movie actor. Is we that love correct? that though. We yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Um, so first I want to do a little bit of background about him because... Really, you have to know about him to understand why he created Esperanto. So he was born on December 15th in 1859 in what was then Belostok in the Russian Empire, but is now Bielostok, Poland. Again, forgive me for any names that I'm going to mess up. Just know that I say them with the best intention. We're going to be butchering a lot of words today, so, so strap in, folks. Get ready for that. Yeah, just hold it in because, you know, you can yell at me, but I won't care. Hmm. So his father, Marcus, was a school teacher who taught German, French, and geography. Yeah, they all, they all go together. Well-rounded, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, his father spoke to him in Russian, while his mother, Rosalia, spoke to him in Yiddish, because the Zamenhof family was Jewish. Quick question. Which one is Yiddish again? So Yiddish is mainly spoken by Ashkenazi Jews, um, and it, it's kind of an amalgamation of, like, Hebrew and German. So it's not... It's not Hebrew. Mm-hmm. It, it would not be spoken by all Jews. My my grandfather's family spoke Yiddish. Mm-hmm. He does not speak Yiddish. Okay. I was once uh, as learning. I was learning Hebrew, and someone gifted me a book in Yiddish as like a. Hey, well, now you're learning Hebrew. Learn this. Yeah. And I was like, here's my I, work. I I can't I can't read this. What do you mean you can't read this? You're a Jew, aren't you? Go on. 
Um, and that's kind of interesting that uh, he already had this. How, how would you describe that? Not like a conlang, but um, like a not a constructed language, but almost like a creole yeah. under his belt. I mean, it is a, a fully functioning language, and is not really like you can't really take it apart and be like, "Well, this is German, this is um, Hebrew," because mm-hmm. it, it it's like derived from like High German, so it's it's an old language, but it is really interesting that he already has this huge mix of languages in his home life and like at school because. He's in Russian-occupied Poland. Sure. So this was before Poland even kind of... uh, Poland existed, but not as we know it today. Exactly. Yeah. And he's also living in in the ghetto, essentially, at this time, right? He's living in land that has been apportioned for Jews, but not, like, in a nice way. It's not like like a tropical paradise that's being put aside because it's such a nice place to live. So, surprise, the Jews are still not treated well. What? <laughs> um, the Russian Empire did not like Jews. They had a lot of laws against uh, Jews and Jewish rights, which I'll get to in just a minute. But basically, a lot of Zamenhof's ideals come from the fact that he was a disenfranchised Jew living in the ghetto. So, he saw from the outside how split the world was. You know, you have Poles and Russians and Jews and any other ethnic minority who's living here. None of them can communicate with each other. None of them want to be around each other. They have this huge divide. And him especially, as like a young Jewish boy, is so left out in the cold. Anyone who's lived in a large cosmopolitan area or a big city with a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different cultures living together, will tell you that just throwing that mix of people together doesn't always, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to meld and they're they're going to become one thing. It's, it's more than likely that you're going to have just groups of people kind of living separately together. Yeah, absolutely. And nothing is more so illustrative of this than the Jewish ghetto, mm-hmm. right? Um, so under the Russian czars, Jews were taxed double of other citizens This is supposedly in lieu of, like, army service because the boys wouldn't go into the army. But they really still had to go, like, produce young men to enter the military. They were restricted to what occupations they were allowed to have, where they could live, what they could own. And then when Tsar Nicholas was assassinated, they were blamed for the assassination in in 1881. So from 1881 to 1884... There were a ton of anti-Jewish riots called pogroms, and those saw Jewish people raped, beaten, and tons of Jewish property destroyed. So just to backtrack a second, you're trying to say that a high-profile figure was assassinated, and it led this country into a time of crisis, and then people somehow used that to blame Jewish people and, and promote some kind of Zionist agenda? Look here, here's a PSA. If you look into any conspiracy theory deep enough, it's always going to be the Jews. Let me tell you that as a Jew. It's always the Jews. I don't know why. I don't know why people hate us so much, but it's the Jews. If you don't believe us, just go into the comment section of any YouTube video on conspiracy theories, and you're only ever uh, three links away from uh, like the Zionist agenda. I don't even have a Zion... Whatever. Your agenda is like, get up, get showered, like, go to work, hang out for a little bit, like, watch a bit of TV. Sometimes I like a beer. Yeah. Sometimes you and then plot the overthrow of the government. And then, like, you know, Nintendo Switch, like, that kind of thing. Guys, it's so much work. I don't... It's too much. Mm. 
So let's get back to Zamenhof. Uh, even as a child, he saw this need for a culturally neutral language. In short, his modest goal for a universal language was to promote world peace. So Esperanto, which was originally called La Lingua Internacia, or the international language, was born. In 1887, Zamenhof published his book under the pseudonym Doctoro Esperanto. Esperanto meaning one who hopes, and that's the name that stuck. It is easier to pronounce than La Lingua Internacia every time you want to say the language. Yeah. 100%. It's very catchy. It's it's his version of the Black Album or the Chronic. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, so Esperanto gains this wide following around Europe, and Zamenhof kept up correspondences, creates periodicals. Uh, in Esperanto, he works on translating Charles Dickens into Esperanto, and this is all while he's still being a doctor and giving out free healthcare to poor people. So he kind of, he practices what he preaches. He he is a very giving man. And this is an important side note as well. Uh, I watched a YouTube video with uh, an Esperantist from India, uh, this professor who was talking about the first things that Samenhof sets about transcribing. They're not engineering manuals. They're not encyclopedias. They're works of art, works of fiction that are designed to grab the heart as opposed to grab the mind. Sure, his ultimate goal is to bring people together. That's what he wants. He wants people to use Esperanto as their second language so that they can converse with each other. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of people didn't like this, namely uh, Hitler and the Nazis. By this point in time, I believe Zemenhof died before the rise to power of Nazis. Yeah, I but, think he died during the First World War, or maybe just before the First World War. Yeah, but he, he did see a lot of opposition from, like, heads of state, from the Russian Empire. People didn't like this idea of hope and bringing people together, especially when it means bringing poor people together and bringing the disenfranchised together. Mm. And I think it's the the thing that stood out in my mind immediately on learning some of the back story of Esperanto, the time during which it was constructed, we're talking about the rise of nation states, we're talking about this inrush of nationalism. And so, of course, if you're the head of state, the head of government for one of these European nations, the last thing that you want is, I guess, people reaching across borders and diluting their national identity and their national culture, their national language with something like Esperanto. You want people to be staunchly whatever they are, whatever country they come from, because that's how you fight and win wars. Sure, it's how you keep like a disparate country together. All you have to do is look at America, the United States, which is really a massive country, which would fail if it weren't for this huge push of ideology of like, oh, America's the best country in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really holding it together. Yeah, one could say that the larger the country or the larger the empire, the more important it is to have that, that central national identity. Yeah, and this is a threat to that. Mm. And of course, Hitler wasn't the only one who tried to destroy uh, the Esperantists, right? No, Stalin also had purges uh, in the 1930s. The Nazis would put Esperantists into concentration camps and kill them. There's mm. actually uh, groups of Esperantists who would still speak in the concentration camps, but 
the Nazi soldiers thought that they were speaking Italian, so they got away with it. Yeah, uh, I guess that's one of the the plus points of it having so many cognates with European languages. I guess all of this is to kind of show that Esperanto has an ideology behind it. It's not just created for a TV show or a novel, not as like a linguistic exercise, but out of a genuine desire for the betterment of people. Today, around 2 million people speak Esperanto worldwide. You can even learn it on Duolingo, uh, not a sponsor. There is music in Esperanto, books, vlogs, and even a 1966 film called Incubus, starring the one and only William Shatner. Apparently, Esperantists have talked about this, and they say that his pronunciation is incredibly bad. Apparently, he learned all his lines phonetically, so he doesn't actually speak Esperanto. He only learned those specific lines for for the movie. Apparently, his DVD commentary is really good, though. It's a, it's more entertaining to kind of watch his DVD commentary of what he was doing with this movie than watch the movie itself. Is his DVD commentary in Esperanto? I don't believe it is. No, because then he would have had to learn <laughs> the commentary phonetically as well, and that would that that seems like a lot of work. Anyway, the the movie, if you're interested in watching it, seems like a typical like 1960s B movie, like B horror movie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, have a go. Yeah, why not? Okay, so I want to Esperanto. How do I do that? Actually, I I started this Duolingo course that you were talking about earlier. And I guess we're going to be talking about this a little bit more throughout this podcast. This is not the first language that I've tried to pick up. Uh, We live in Taiwan. And before that, we lived in China. So over the past five years, I've had a good old try at mastering Mandarin, and it's... My Mandarin is not great, it's better than it was, it's beyond beginner level, but I feel like within that space of time, I I could be fluent in another language. Prior to that, I tried learning Spanish when I was in university, prior to that, I tried learning German and French when I was uh, in secondary school and in primary school, and I even tried picking up a little bit of Gaelic, Scots Gaelic, before... Uh, diving into Esperanto. This is so, 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 so much easier than any of those, Uh, especially Gaelic, which was the one that I tried to pick up most recently, where just the the consonants that you're looking at, that's just, it's not the sounds that you're going to say, right? Like a like a BH can be a V sound and like a an MH can be like a SH sound. It's all over the map. Esperanto is, relatively speaking at least, very matter-of-fact. It's very easy to pick up. Yeah, I did a little bit of the Duolingo course, and it is, it's very much like a romance language. Yeah. I, Spanish is my second language, and it's pretty easy to pick up, especially if you have, like, a romance language under your belt. Yeah. That's true of, like, anything. Your your third language is probably the easiest to pick up, provided it's not Mandarin, because I cannot, I cannot do Mandarin. We're going to hit some of those figures later on, but, uh, and this makes sense because Esperanto is made up of Romantic languages and it's all also made up of uh, Germanic languages as well. So when Zamenhof constructed this language, it was made up of different parts of English, French, German, Spanish, 
There's a smattering of Greek in there. I, the li- little bits and pieces, I believe, more in like the connective tissue of the the language. I think you said something about Lithuanian as well. Yeah, there is uh, some Slovak, I believe, in there, and maybe some Lithuanian, although in 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 smaller amounts than those other languages. And again, I think the the idea there was that if you're at the very least, if you're a European language speaker, then this is going to be much more accessible for you. So uh, I looked up the the grammar guide from the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's a very comprehensive overview of the grammar of Esperanto, and I'm going to read a little bit of that now. So they describe it as, Grammar is simple and regular. There are characteristic word endings for nouns, adjectives, and verbs. Nouns have no gender and are marked by the ending o. The plural is indicated by oi, and the objective or accusative case is marked by on, pronounced uh, oin, I guess. And so, for example, amiko would be a friend, amikoi are friends, and amikon is a friend in the accusative case, as in, uh, I talk to my friend. There's no indefinite article. The only article that you're going to come across is la, which is the same regardless of the noun. And uh, so the, an example sentence would be something like, uh, la bonage amicois estas ti. The good friends are there. Mi havas bonon amicon. I have good friends. Uh, verbs are all regular, so there's none of that regular and irregular verb table nonsense, and they have only one form for each tense or mood. Uh, they are not inflected for person or number. Again, the example would be something like mi havas, vi havas, she havas, ili havas, which would be I have, you have, she has, they have. There is an extensive uh, extensive set of suffixes that can be added to root words to allow various shades of meaning or newly derived forms. Compound words are also used. So I got a little bit confused with all of the suffixes because mm-hmm. it kind of seems like you can add, 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 add suffixes. Like, a bit confusing to me. Yeah. It seems like, so for every word you have like a root word, you can have a prefix and you can have suffixes. Yes. So uh, an example of that in Esperanto, they they don't really have words with a negative form. They they don't bother with negative words. They just add a prefix to that. So for example, good is bona. If you want to say bad, there's no word for bad. You just say mal bona, mal meaning the, the opposite of. Yeah, and any time you want to say, like, so, like, sanu is health, and if you want to say bad health, you would say mal sanu. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much it. And if it sounds very simple, that's because it is. Comparatively speaking, at least, the U.S. Foreign State Institute, who specializes in language training courses and definitely don't act as recruiters for spies, wink. They're the ones who train diplomats. Yes. And possibly also. Spice. <laughs> Diplomats, quote unquote unquote. Uh, so they compiled a list of different language acquisition rates, and and this makes some very interesting reading. Uh, their their language acquisition rates it should be noted as based on native English speakers learning that language as opposed to any other group of individuals. Uh, so according to their website, this is based on seventy years of observations and records the average number of classroom hours for different participants. 
Their list is broken down into five categories ranging from, and I love the way that they term this, easy, which is category one. So an easy language would take something like 600 to 750 classroom hours, and examples include Danish, Italian, and Norwegian, to hard, which would be a category three language. These languages take around about 1,100 hours, so you're talking languages like Albanian, Czech, or Mongolian, to, their words, super hard. So American. Super, Super hard. hard. And I got it. Can't even oh, believe it. I'm stuttering Mandarin. With and this language right now. It's just like super hard, Professor. Oh my God. So they're super hard languages, which are category fours. These take around 2,200 hours to, to master. And you're talking languages like Mandarin, Arab, Arabic, and Korean. Korean is another one that I left off my list, actually, another language that I've tried and failed to master. But I feel kind of good that of those half a dozen or so languages, two of those are from the super hard category, according to the FSI. To be fair, this is super hard for English speakers yes, to learn. Again. So, you know, Italian is easier for an English speaker than it would be for a Japanese speaker. So our super easy languages, again, they take 600 to 750 hours to master for a native English speaker. Where does Esperanto rank with that? According to several Esperanto-based sources, Esperanto would range somewhere from 100 to 200 hours to become highly conversational. So I have watched videos of people having conversations in Esperanto, and there are numerous like clubs and groups and lots of videos. And to me, I don't know if it's just because they are not fully comfortable because they're still language learners, but it never really sounds cohesive. It always sounds like a bit stuttery. Oh, okay. I don't know that I really picked up on that. Maybe it is because, you know, they're they're just learning it. They're not, they haven't attained fluency yet. I think it's because a lot of the videos that I watched, uh, I went down a, a mini rabbit hole of watching native Esperantists because the, there are such things People who, you know, maybe their their mom is French and their dad's Hungarian and they met through Esperanto or their mom is Japanese, their dad's Polish. And, and again, they met through Esperanto. So they grew up learning Esperanto as their first language. And they and that sounds very tangible. It sounds like a proper language to me, to my ears. I guess it is like any kind of language learning club. You're going to be like, you know, maybe I'm, I'm probably being too critical. But I don't know how I feel about the 100 to 200 hours to learn Esperanto. Sure. And again, we have to try and avoid the hype of various different language learning resources where it's like, become fluent in three months, become fluent in 12 easy lessons, because that just never happens. You know, it's just not realistic. But based on having tried my hand at Esperanto through Duolingo over the past couple of weeks, I, I could believe it. I could believe it. And again, we're not sponsored by Duolingo, but Duolingo, if you are listening, we are looking for sponsors. So, you know, hit us up. Yeah, if we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, uh, ETRH, the pod. Anyway, so would this be a good time for a break? Let's break. Hello, and welcome back. Hello again. 
Uh, I'm going to start the second part with an apology. Uh, so during the break, we left our spare room, had a little stretch, had some fresh air, came back, and then as soon as I closed the door of our spare room where we record the podcast, uh, immediately let out a, like a five-second-long fart. And and I'm sorry for that. Why are you telling them this? This is behind-the-scenes stuff. That's what they want. No. They want the nitty-gritty. Um, anyway, so, yeah, apologies for that. Just apologies for this. Apologies for everything, guys. Let's talk Why about... Why are you apologizing to them? I mean, I feel like they could probably smell it through their headphones. It was really bad. It was really quite bad. Uh, let's talk about Esperanto as a language learning tool. Get hold of yourself, Alicia. Um, so... One of the the key selling points of Esperanto is how easy it is to pick up as a second language. And people have even gone as far as to say that learning Esperanto acts as kind of like a like a like a boost for any other languages that you happen to be learning at the time or learning afterwards. So some people set about trying to prove that. In the early teens, which is what I call the period between 2010 and 2019. I mean, we need a word for it. What's your word for it? I, I, the tense? I don't know. I hadn't thought of it. You can give me like a really disdainful look. <laughs> just, for... You're harping on about the teens. I don't know. I just <laughs> In the early teens, a pilot program was set up in English primary schools to teach children Esperanto. Over the course of 18 months, the students would be learning this auxiliary language as part of their regular courses. So the idea here was not to produce fluent Esperantists in the classroom who could converse in the language with ease. Rather, this auxiliary language was being used as a kind of learning schema to support other aspects of the children's education. You can imagine it was kind of a hard sell. I can see how this could work, though, because it is quite hard. I don't know if you ever had to do, like, grammar, like, sentence diagramming. I don't recall coming across that until I started learning a foreign language. I don't recall coming across that as, like, in my English classes or anything. So I had to do that in my English classes, and mm-hmm. that was quite hard. And it, it still is hard, like, as a teacher to, ha- like, teach your kids different names of things and, like, yes. how they work, you know? Yeah. Like, you could, you could tell people, well, you know, adverbs usually end in L-Y, but not always. Okay, so a classic example of this, I have been working with a group of students for nine months now, and we have been, we've been uh, working through adjectives for at least six months of that. And so I know that they know adjectives. I know that they know colors. I know that they know emotions. I know that they know some simple sizes. They know things like big and small, hard, soft, fat, thin, etc., etc. But every time I get up to the whiteboard and I'm like, okay, guys, give me some adjectives. They're like, crocodile. And I'm like, no, good try. But you And they do know it. So they know it, but they just don't know the terminology that's yeah, attached to it. They need to have the examples first. So I can see how having like a regular language mm-hmm. be your example, like your springboard for learning the different parts of speech could be really helpful. I, I do have my own thoughts on this and, and I'm going to come back around to them. So I think that was the the idea behind this. One of the teachers involved in organizing and delivering the so-called Springboard 2 languages, that's two as in the number, so you know it's cool for the kids, uh, was Tim Morley. He's presented a number of talks on the subject where he discusses the course's successes and failures. The main aim, he explains, was to assist students in learning a second language, any second language. 
British pupils, and by extension Brits in general, regularly come bottom on league tables in learning languages other than their own. We were really bad at it. Um, this should this should be surprising as students in most British primary schools will spend a year or two learning another language in the classroom before heading to secondary schools where they will be exposed to anywhere between an additional two to six years of additional study. How can you study language for up to eight years and still not be able to speak it? I can tell you how. It's okay. no uh, exposure to the language. Yeah. I mean, the amount of parent-teacher conferences I've had where the, the parent is like, but how? How can I get Jerry to speak English? I'm like, what do you do at home? Um, do speak you spe- Chinese. Do you speak, do you listen to programs in English? Do you watch TV shows in English? Do you talk to people in English? Because if you don't, he is not going to learn English from just schoolwork. So I definitely do think that's part of the problem. If you were to take the average, let's say the average British people, and then ask them how many, let's say they're learning French in the classroom. Like, I think my last two years of primary school, I spent learning French in the classroom, and then the next two years of secondary school learning French as well. Can't remember a word of it. Bon, that's about it. Cool de sac? Uh, la piscine? Uh, très bien. And other French words. Yeah, actually, the one that stands out in my mind is uh, le sac de magie, which means the magic bag. And the reason I remember that is because it's from a children's TV show called Tots TV, where the these little rag dolls have like a magic sack that they can reach into and they, they retrieve whatever the MacGuffin for that particular episode is. One of the Tots happens to be French. So like during the theme tune shoot, it's like, I'm a Tot, je suis un Tot, teeny, tom and tiny. Where are the thoughts? I'm not going to get done for copyright. So what in the world were we talking about? Uh, how can you learn all those languages and not acquire them? So if you were to take the average British people and ask how many hours a week they spend listening to French songs, watching French television, watching French movies, reading French comic books, and then compare that to the average French people, how many hours they spend learning English via comic books, movies, TV shows, I think you're going to find that the French kids have a lot more exposure because that's just the world that we live in. That's the result of, you know, the expansion of uh, British and American culture. Yeah, I mean, one of the main reasons most people speak English as their second language is because of Hollywood and music recording artists. You know, there's a huge amount of culture, quote-unquote culture, that comes from the Western-speaking world, into the East. I think it's also an issue of how do you measure success? Because we know firsthand that, yes, having students sit exams and trying to score 100% on the test, that is one rubric, that's one benchmark for measuring success with English. It's not a very accurate one, because when you come back a week or two after the test and you ask the students those same questions, they're, they're kind of lost at sea. And unfortunately, I think we see we both see that with our own students when you're trying to get them to recall stuff from the previous book. And it's just, it's like you're speaking a foreign language. But this isn't about our teaching methods. No, this isn't the gripe corner, because if it were, that would be a much longer and, uh, and, and More less pleasant show. 
So Tim Morley argues that amongst other difficulties here, there is an issue of building confidence, becoming familiar with alien concepts such as gendered nouns and articles or complicated adjectival relationships, not to mention tenses that we don't think or speak in, can be overwhelming for children and arguably adults too. Hammering home these concepts during prescribed lessons leaves a lot of room for failure and you can end up with students who, after years of study, become convinced that they're not making progress because they're just bad at languages. So I can't remember which podcast it was, but um, one of the presenters was talking about, like, you wouldn't just throw a kid into learning, like, any kind of musical instrument. Usually kids start, at least in the US or maybe the UK, you start with a recorder, which is a god-awful instrument, but... hey. You know, like, I'm sure you could nail three blind mice or hickory dickory dock. A lot easier than on the piano, let me tell you what. Yeah. I got tiny hands. She, I'm looking at them right now, and they are freakishly small. But, um, yeah, no, I think Tim Morley makes that same same analogy as well. He In one of his talks, he shows the picture of a bassoon, and he's like, oh, how many people here can play the bassoon? Probably not a lot, because it's an incredibly complex instrument, and you have to learn about uh, fingerings and, uh, don't, don't do it. Actually, in my head, all I could think was only baboons play the bassoon. I don't know why. (laughs) That's, that's really prejudiced, actually. No. That's really rude. I apologize to all the bassoon players in the audience. And all the baboons. Um, no, but the, the point he's trying to make is you don't start a kid with something like a bassoon or a saxophone or a flute. You, you start the kids with the recorder and then you, you build up from there. And that's the idea with Esperanto. So, uh, Esperanto, on the other hand, is blessfully free of these added complications. One article, no arbitrarily gendered nouns, only three tenses. They only have a simple past, a simple present, and a simple future. Which was something that I was confused with, of right. course, with Duolingo, because, like, logas means live, but it could also mean is living. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's simple. Yeah, and you could ask yourself, given certain contexts, like, why does it need to be more complex than that? Mandarin's very much like that. Mandarin uh, has verbs, which are often used interchangeably with adjectives. But you don't change the verb ending depending on tense. You'll add like a, a suffix like le, which can indicate that something happened in the past, or something like guo to indicate that like you have done something in the past. Um, but again, this isn't Mandarin Corner. This is Esperanto time. So the anecdotal evidence suggests that students who are exposed to Esperanto for a year and a half before attempting another language like French or Spanish will find it significantly easier and make much faster progress. How much of this is down to self-confidence and how much is a more developed cognitive framework? Who knows? But many people will back up this assertion. What do you think? I mean, I think it also depends. There's such a wide variety for language learning. Mm -hmm. Like, there's not really a standard. So to say that, like, you can be better if you learn Esperanto first, I don't know if that could be true. I do think that sometimes older students have it easier in the sense that they understand what an adjective is and what a verb is and, and... you can tell them, like, the adjective comes here and the verb comes here. Mm-hmm. And that might be easier for them. Whereas, like, a young learner, you just, like, well, you just get exposed to it and you learn it that way. Yeah, of course. I mean, how many people uh, do we know who have, like, lived abroad as children 
And so they're like, oh, yeah, well, I used to speak Greek or I used to speak German or whatever, because you just played with Greek or German kids when when you were of an age where you were really like not even self-aware at that point. Yeah, it's two very different learning styles for two different sizes of brains, essentially. Yeah, I do think that like you need a framework before you can launch into like real speaking. So, for Mm -hmm. example... I learned Spanish for like four years in high school and I could get by. My teacher thought I was good. I wasn't that great. And I found out that I wasn't that great when I moved to Spain. But I had that framework behind me, which really helped me to actually fill in all the gaps. Sure. Yeah. It's, um, you gotta have the fundamentals. You gotta have fundamentals. Yeah. We can't all be Michael Jordan. Um, some of us have to be Larry Bird? Another basketball person. (laughs) Sure, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, So let's not get too carried away with all this anecdotal evidence. Uh, Tim Morley is quick to point out that anecdotal evidence is exactly that, anecdotal. This project was never made part of the standard curriculum in any one of the four nations, uh, and as such, there simply aren't enough sample sizes. Furthermore, such a study would take years to complete, as you would need to track students' progress from their time in primary level Esperanto into a secondary level second language, or in this case, third language. And in the end, is it worth it? Why is something like this any better than the now defunct practices of studying Latin or ancient Greek to encourage a more robust and well-rounded psyche? Arguably, Esperanto shares a lot more cognates and grammatical norms of modern languages, but you would still have to convince innumerable parents, teachers, and head teachers before getting it rolled out across the country. And that's the main problem with Esperanto, isn't it? That you have to convince people to speak it. It doesn't have a homeland where people want to go. It doesn't have, like, I mean, it does have a flag and an anthem, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't have a home base. And you can't count on certain people speaking Esperanto. So the big question is, why would you learn it? Yeah, I can also appreciate this uphill battle that he's talking about. I mean, how many times have we tried to fight to convince our school managers or parents that like spelling tests are not the be all and end all. They're quite important, but nailing a five out of five or a 10 out of 10 in every spelling test isn't going to make you a fluent English speaker. Um, And that actually you know, spending more time just conversing and playing around with the language with uh, less of a teach-test, teach structure is much more beneficial for students than, uh, you know, say, like, getting them to write down a bunch of sentences, you know? I think I agree with this line of thinking, and I think it's because Esperanto is such a... Even though earlier we were talking about how it's a language that attempts to to kind of pull in the heartstrings and win people over uh, that way, it's it's a very logical language. And I think it forces you to think of other languages logically. I, another analogy you could draw is maybe your approach in, in the gym. Like anyone who's tried to get super buff in the gym, you know there's a big difference between the guys who go in and they kind of throw the weights around and They're just kind of feeling out what feels right in the moment, but then they're coming back week after week and they're not seeing any kind of gains versus the the dude that you see like with a teeny tiny notepad and he's marking down exactly what weight he's got and how many reps and how he's feeling, etc. That's the guy who's going to have bigger gains because he's thinking about it much more logically. And I think, um, you know, 
whether you want to get ripped in the gym or if you want to get ripped at, in the tongue. It, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's there's uh, similar approaches to both of those. But there are other uses for Esperanto. I mean, it has two million speakers worldwide, and there are some pretty big communities of Esperanto speakers. There are events and communities all around the world. There's a website called Esperanto.net, and if you go into their local organizations, it will show you clubs all over the world. Uh, Suffice it to say, by the way, that all of these uh, websites and sources, as always, we'll put them in the show notes so that you guys can get a hold of them. Yeah, so concentrations of these clubs seem mostly in Europe, the US, South America, mainly in Brazil. So we can see a lot of European-based languages using them as, you know, the base for clubs for Esperanto. But there are clubs in Nigeria, Japan, Nepal, Lebanon. Those are just some of the countries where you can find kinship with fellow speakers. I tried to look into uh, these clubs to see what kind of events they held or what kind of things they did. I watched some YouTube videos. They mostly just seem to be a group that gets together and chats. And some of the, like, recordings I read were just, like, talking about the rules of Esperanto or maybe talking about, like, its goals as in world peace, that sort of thing. Yeah, I listened to a podcast on the language hacking part of the language hacking podcast, they interviewed uh, an Esperantist called Chuck Smith, I believe. And he has had a long and storied history with the language that is about 20 years old now. And he's attended and set up many of these events. And it sounds really fun. And it sounds like there's a lot of uh, dancing and having dinner together and even things like watching uh, Esperanto dubbed movies together. He even talks about this one weird thing that has sprang up in Esperanto events and then moved into like polyglot meetups where uh, late at night they'll have like a tea room set up. So every one of these communities, there's always like a tea room that's set up for people who have like been out drinking with fellow Esperantists and they just want to like chill for a little while before like the early hours of the morning before retiring to bed. And that's now, like, embedded into their culture, which is kind of cool. That is really cool. Yeah. I thought another interesting aspect of Esperanto is that as English speakers, we have an advantage in most conversations. You know, we have gone to language meetups before, Mm -hmm. and it's always, like, ostensibly to help people learn English and also for us to learn Mandarin Mm -hmm. or whatever else our, our meetup group is for. And it always devolves into only English. I think this is just inherent in languages, isn't it? It's not an inherent uh, thing with English. People are always going to follow the path of least resistance. Again, how many people do we know who are in mixed nationality relationships? You know, so maybe like they speak English, but their partner speaks Mandarin or their partner speaks Korean or Japanese, etc. And so you, does that mean that they use 50% English and 50% Korean in the home? No, they don't. They probably use almost 100% of whichever language they are mutually strongest in, which a lot of the time is English. Sure. Um, I mean, I had a life before you, and uh, I did experience that with a previous partner. I don't like it when you talk about this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you do kind of fall into... Like, I I could speak Spanish, but my partner spoke Spanish and English, and 
we both spoke English better than I spoke Spanish, basically. Yeah. So wouldn't it be easier if we just spent most of our time speaking English? But it does put you at an advantage to the non-native speaker, right? You have this whole knowledge of how to speak English and hearing someone struggle speaking, it may not be intentional, but you start to think of them as less intelligent. I mean, I completely agree. Again, I've been trying to learn Mandarin for so many years. And one of the things that continually puts me off is I just feel dumb when I'm speaking of Mandarin because my knowledge of Mandarin is so limited and nobody wants to sound dumb, right? And that's the main problem when it comes to learning another language, right? Is you you never want to sound like an idiot. You could have interesting things to say or something to add to the conversation, but you feel like you're like, I'm not, I'm not stupid, I swear. <laughs> I'm not an idiot. I, if we were speaking in my native tongue, I could express myself and you would be wowed right now. Yeah. There's nothing that knocks your confidence more than learning a language for almost five years and then having somebody that you chat to for the first time being like, you know, maybe you don't know, but in Mandarin, we have four tones and they go, ah, 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 ah. And I'm like, oh, Thanks. Yeah, I never knew that. I didn't learn that on literally day one of uh, of studying Mandarin. Thank you. <laughs> but I guess the point of Esperanto is that if you were both speaking in your second language, you would have a more equal footing and you would be more mindful of somebody else's struggle to speak in a language because you yourself have that struggle. Yeah, of course. Of course. As the initial vision of Esperanto suggests it's much more egalitarian, isn't it? No one feels like they're being put at a disadvantage. No one feels as though they're being put upon. Yeah, it's a great idea. And lastly, in terms of other places to, to speak Esperanto, there are a lot of like online chat rooms. There's an app called Amikumi, which seems to be a popular app that links speakers yeah, this is the the guy that I was talking about earlier, okay. Chuck Smith. Like he, I think, developed or was part of the development of this app. Yeah, so it seems to be kind of like Tinder for language learning. You choose your language and then it shows you a hundred of the closest people in your vicinity who are also speak that language or learning that language. I think he compared it to Pokemon Go, but I guess it just depends how sexy you want to get. Uh, when meeting fellow Esperantists. The sexiest. Mm. And then there's also uh, a Discord group under R Esperanto, which I recently joined, and I don't really understand what they're talking about. There just seems to be quite a lot of, Hi, I'm new. Oh, welcome. How are you today? And then maybe, like, a meme in Esperanto. So, I mean, a chat group, basically. Sure, yeah. So Discord is kind of like Reddit but in a slightly different vein. So it's it's basically chat groups for things that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like video game chat groups. You can have like private discords with like your friends. It's basically like MSN Messenger with a bunch of people. So QAnon haven't gotten there yet, and there are fewer like public freakout videos. Well, it's more private, so there's probably QAnon forums, but I haven't been invited to them personally. Ah, okay. I fulfilled my contractual obligation to mention QAnon in every podcast episode. Um, so Esperanto, it sounds fantastic, right? Sign me up. Hold your horses, bucko, because there might be one or two problems with Esperanto. First up, is it a bit Eurocentric? 
Uh, one of LL Zamenhof's goals with Esperanto was to create a language which would be as inclusive as possible and in theory as easy for a beginner from one part of the world to pick up as someone from a completely different part of the world. And to this end, Esperanto's original vocab and grammar is made up, as we were saying earlier, of parts of Italian, French, German, Yiddish, and English. It also features smatterings of Latin, Greek, Slavic, and Lithuanian. So, from a contemporary standpoint, this might make sense. Zamenhof uh, lived through a time of growing nationalization, and the building blocks for this language were all taken from the main players who would soon plunge the world into the Great War. These were the people who, if you were worried about any nations, like people from different countries butting heads and miscommunicating with one another, you'd be worried about people from like France and Germany, potentially, or people from like Italy and and, uh, Greece. And the nation of Yiddish. Wait. Uh, Yeah, 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 (laughs) them too. But. What does this mean for us in 2021? Although it's difficult to pin down precise figures, the top 10 list of the most widely spoken languages in the world today goes something like this. You've got Chinese with around about 1.3 billion native speakers. I'm a bit dubious about this figure because I think Chinese there has been uh, rolled into Mandarin plus Cantonese plus Wu plus Hakka. So Chinese and some similar languages from surrounding regions. They call them dialects, but they're completely different languages. I mean, one has, if you look at Mandarin and Cantonese, one has four tones, one has eight tones. I have had somebody go through the tones in Cantonese with me, and I I can't tell the difference. <laughs> I, I can't believe it's not, I can't believe it's not Mandarin. <laughs> uh, yeah, they are distinct languages, but if we take people who speak some form of Chinese, something akin to Chinese, you're talking about 1.3 billion native speakers. Then you've got Spanish, which has about 460 million. English speakers make up 379 million people. Hindi has around about uh, 341 million people. Then you've got Arabic with 315 million, Portuguese with 280 million, Bengali with 228 million, Russian with 153 million, Japanese with 128 million, Landa, which is Western Punjabi, with 118 million. That's the top 10. Now, for three out of those 10 cohorts, they may find themselves on even footing when they first encounter Esperanto. But of the 3.7 billion people that are represented on that list, only around 992 million would find themselves with a natural advantage based on their mother tongue. That's only around about 37%. And that's obviously a non-exhaustive list of the, the number of languages out there, the number of people living in the world right now. So actually, compared to the number of people walking around on Earth today, that's a, an even smaller percentage who would have a quote-unquote advantage when learning Esperanto. Sure, it's... It seems pretty easy if you speak English or if you speak, you know, a European language. But what if you come from Korea or you come from, obviously, like China or a, or speaking a Chinese dialect? Mm-hmm. You know, there is nothing in common that you have. You don't have cognates. You don't have any sort of thing to, to link you to this language. And I have heard of groups of Esperantists from China, from Japan, from Korea who have picked up Esperanto. And they've picked up Esperanto because they find it easier, but because they find it easier than English, which doesn't inherently make it easy. I mean, a lot of things are, are easier than learning English. Don't we know it? <laughs> Tell you what, 
why don't we have a little break and when we come back we might talk about how Esperanto might be a little bit misogynistic as well. Ooh. Yeah. No. And welcome back. Uh, in the break there, I was uh, ordering some burgers, so that's going to be really nice and tasty when it arrives, something to look forward to. And right, singing a little you. bit. No, you don't get burgers. Um, sorry, that's just, I mean, you know, throw us some money and, and maybe. Uh, and singing a little bit of Spandau Ballet to Alicia and the verdict was... Yeah, it's pretty good. Thank yeah, you. Well done. I needed that today. Um, so, Alicia, why don't you tell us about why Esperanto might be a little bit sexist. So we kind of mentioned that one of Esperanto's alluring features is its genderless nouns, Mm. except they're not, not really genderless. So the Esperanto word for dog is hundo. 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 But the word for a female dog is hundino. Hundino. Which also translates to bitch, by the way. Uh... Could you say that in Esperanto? Like, if you didn't like a woman, could you be like, oh, estas hundino? That's what I saw on some of the chat groups. Oh, my. Like, they weren't calling each other hundinos, but they they did were talking about when I was reading about gender in Esperanto. Are you sure it's not just that thing where, like, women are, like, faux friends, they're actual frenemies, and you're like, ah, you bitch, you're such a bitch. It's like, huh? oh, oh si estas hundino. <laughs> Um, no. No. So it's the, the same for a man and a woman, uh, Viro and Virino. Viro. Virino. So. <laughs> I'm here to help Thank people. you. Yeah, it, it feels like it. Um, so if we look at this, does it just mean that, like, all dogs are, like, inherently male? Like, all people are inherently men unless we specify that it's a woman? Yes. Okay, cool. Welcome to the patriarchy, folks. <laughs> So, I mean, it seems like a pretty easy fix. Like, all you would have to do is have, like, a genderless root noun, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So, O denotes a noun, and I-N-O or E-N-O denotes uh, a female. And the prefix, the prefix G or G-E... I believe it's G. Um, ...makes it gender neutral, but you only really use that in plurals. Yeah. Which just seems really weird to me. So, for example, uh, if you're saying... Father, you would say, uh, help me out here. So it would be patro. Mother would be patrino. But parents would be gepatrenoi. Yes, but you can't make the word the singular parent because gepatro doesn't exist. It's apparently more common to say uno e la gepatroi or gepatro, one of the parents. But it sounds pretty clunky to me. It does. And this is before we even get into the world of not identifying people by their preferred gender pronouns. Or even if you have two parents who are in a same-sex relationship, one of them inherent, like, they're both mothers. One of them has to be the mother. So, like, why can't you just say your parent? parent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it seems weird to me that you wouldn't just have, like, a word for parent. That you would have to go, like... One of my parents, not only is it a little bit sexist, it's just weird. Like, that's mm-hmm. a lot of extra work to go through. Um, this is true for pretty much, like, all 
family members or, or relationships. So, for example, how, how about we do this? I'll say the Esperanto, and you can jump in with the English, and then I can use my fun Esperanto accent that I've been oh, working on. Great. Okay. Yeah? All right. You ready? What, maybe I wanted to use my fun Esperanto accent. But, okay. You know, well, it's do, fine. Do Whatever. The patriarchy. The patriarchy. Fight the patriarchy. Oh my god. So first up, we've got Avo. Grandfather. Edzo. Husband. Fiancho. Fiance. Filo. Son. Frato. Brother. Nepo. Grandson. We can't both do... <laughs> I just want to be involved. There needs to be a straight man and a... Ki- you know what? It's a- <laughs> I've Nevo. got a straight man. Nevo. Nephew. Onclo. Uncle. Patro. Father. Vidvo. Widower. Just, you know, in case you've suffered that... Well, you know, sorry. Sorry for your so, loss. Mine sounded disingenuous, but yeah, really sorry. Uh, Kuzo. Uh, cousin. So basically, they're all male, unless you change them. So it it is similar to like Spanish, like abuelos is grandparents, but abuelo is grandfather and abuela is grandmother. Mm-hmm. And if you want to say my grandmother's, mis abuelas. But from what little I know of French, it's not really the case. Like, for example, you say grand-mère for grandmother and grand-père for grandfather. Excuse my accent. Look at you using your fun French accent. No, See, everybody not... gets a turn. Whatever. It just doesn't feel the same. Mm-hmm. Just whatever. Um, so we have something similar in, in English. For example, a waiter means a man or a woman, mm-hmm. unless you specify by saying waitress. And some of that is changing now, right? We have servers instead of waiters and waitresses. We say actor instead of specifying like actor, actress. Yeah, and police officer instead of policeman, firefighter instead of fireman. Mm -hmm. In Esperanto, Leonino is lioness and Kelnino? Kelnerino? Kelnerino is waitress. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like as English speakers, we can't be too high and mighty about like inherent sexism in the language. Oh, yeah. Um, We're still hella sexist. But, I mean, a lot of those things that people think, just as as a side note, things like man and woman, those two words are derived from two completely different words. So just hold yourself back from too much, you know. Yes. A woman isn't, uh, like, a derivation of man. Mm -mm. It's not like an alternative man. (laughs) That's just how I view ladies. They're just alternative men. Uh, And what a terrible copy we are. So, does it... Too lumpy. <laughs> does it really matter? And, you know, you could say, like, you know, whatever, it's it's a language, you know, there are going to always be problems within a language. But I think for a language whose whole goal is to promote, like, inclusivity and, like, peace, it I think it does matter. Like, in the same way that English has adopted a singular they for non-binary people, there should be ungendered nouns. Why should I have to say gay malsonoi for sick people of both genders when I could just say malsonoi. Like... Yeah, and it's also... That's one of the inherent beauties of uh, Esperanto, right? Like, when Zamenhof handed out his uh, manuscript, is the wrong word, but, like, his guide to how to speak Esperanto in its original form. Again, the analogy that I keep thinking of is, like, Minecraft, when the developers of Minecraft first, like, put the beta out, they really, you know, they just made it free to everybody and they just wanted to see what people would do with it. And what people did with it was like build Minecraft cathedrals and build scale replicas of the USS Enterprise and things like that. So 
people have done similar stuff with Esperanto and just kind of used the building blocks in that way. Yeah, like, let's be honest, the whole point of languages is that they are living, they change, and they grow, depending on the culture around them. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason why Esperanto couldn't change as well. So apparently, these kind of problems were brought up to Zamenhof in the very beginning, but there were so many things brought up that he held like a conference and then people just decided not to change like they they voted and they said like let's not change presumably one of the key factors here is the fact that by this stage so uh esperanto was introduced in 1887 is that correct and i think one of the first conferences was five years afterwards so uh zamenhof had already been peddling this uh, across europe and many people had adopted it and learned the language. And so now you're asking them to kind of relearn something that they already invested so much time in. And, and maybe they've already formed relationships with people using this language. So I get it. It's kind of an ask. But there, I mean, there are some changes that aren't really that hard. For example, like adding the suffix icho for men. So patro would mean parent. Patrino, mother, and patricio, father. And the inclusion of a non-gendered pronoun, usually chosen to be re, which leads us to the term reism, which is this kind of proposed change to Esperanto to be more uh, sexual, sexually inclusive? Uh, yeah. Less sexist? I, well, I thought you were going to say more sexual. And Sexy. I, was like, I mean, I've heard it. It doesn't get much sexier than that. Um, it's, it's a movement to remove sexism from language. Mm -hmm. uh, there are some arguments against this which state that we can't pick and choose what we like in a language, but don't we already do that? Like, I pick and choose things that I like in English all the time. We make up words in English all the time. Yeah, it's, it's one of the things that defines English against something like, say, French, where we don't have a governing body who decides what new words are going to be uh, allowed into the language. Uh, That's a real thing, and they're all old white men. Yeah, but we... Like, we have William Shakespeare, who famously, like, coined so many of the phrases and so many of the words that we use on an everyday basis. Um, so, yeah, there should be that level of fluidity in any language. It's they also, it's like my old journalism tutor uh, used to say, like, perfection is the enemy of the good, right? So, trying to nail down every single thing and, and reinvent the wheel every time when your overall goal is to unify people, it might be, I don't know, is it, is it worth going back to, back to the drawing board every time? I don't know that it's worth going back to the drawing board, but is it going back to the drawing board when you're promoting changes that aren't that hard to implement? You know, it's the same thing when it comes to, like, feminism or, or sexism in every day. You yeah. know, is it is it really that hard to make a little change? It it's not, but you always have people who are going to fight change at every step. Yeah. And as is the case with Edo, this is something that I was only tangentially aware of uh Esperanto before we started uh writing and recording this episode. But Edo is an offshoot of Esperanto that came along relatively early really soon. In, yeah, in its in its lifespan. And if you think it, and so they were proposing similar stuff, right? And they were, I think they were proposing to make the language a bit more complex and nuanced. So for example, instead of using mal as a prefix for everything, to say like, for example, I think the word uh, for right, as in the direction is something like 
directo, but instead of, or directa, mal directa is left. So left is literally just not right. So they, they, uh, they propose that it's something like sinestro or sinestra should be so closer to the Latin word for left. I mean, I kind of get it because you think of like these really basic conlangs, ones that people are made to be simplified, but you do lose a lot of nuance in, in the way that you speak. Like, how much information are you losing? It's the same problem when people have translating languages, right? Can you, for example, in, in Spanish, there are words that we don't have in English. How can you translate that word with the same connotation? You can't. Yeah, it's true. So it needs to be simple, but it also needs to allow enough wiggle room to become more complex and become more faceted. Yeah. But when we talk about sexism, I think there are a couple important things to note. One, Esperanto was created by a man in the 1800s. Of course, there's bound to be some sexism baked in. It's probably unintentional, but it it happens because that is the world that he lived in. Yeah, we're not saying that L.L. Zamenhof was a bad guy. Quite the opposite, in fact. But, you know, it's like any other historical figure that you talk about. They tend to be products of their time, even if they are, quote unquote, uh, woke for their, yeah, for, for their era. Um, you know, they, I mean, they're just not where we are today in terms of just being like with it. Oh my know? God, we're like so progressive today. We're just like the best. Super woke. Um, so. I think the second thing I'd like to mention is that a lot of these words have obtained a more general neutral, like gender neutral connotation as the language grows and develops. For example, there was a phrase that uh, Zamenhof used to say, to a happy man, even a coco lays eggs. Coco is an Esperanto word that could mean chicken or rooster, but now it primarily means chicken. So it doesn't really make sense anymore. This phrase would be, to a happy man, even a chicken lays eggs, when originally it should be, to a happy man, even a rooster lays eggs. It's like people who say, oh, I could care less. Yes, you you could care less, so why why would you, you know, th- that's completely you know, idiotic. You couldn't care less. You couldn't care less. <laughs> you couldn't care less. Go to your breathing space. Come on. In, out. In, out. I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Um, so, yeah, there, there are some changes in the language. You know, uh, as it grows and develops, some of these words do become more gender neutral. So is that a trend we will see in the future? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Speaking of in the future, where is Esperanto today, you might ask? Again, when I came on to this topic, I thought Esperanto was not a dead language, but so obscure and so niche that it, it's essentially a dead language. And far from it, the figure that keeps cro- cropping up time and time again whenever you try and research how many people actually speak, actively speak Esperanto today is around about 2 million. I think figures range anywhere from like 100,000 people to, to 2 million. I'm guessing that that's based on measuring people who are like native speakers or, or have a, attained like full mastery of the language versus people who are just conversational. But even if you are just talking about people who are conversational in Esperanto, that's that's still a weighty figure. And as you were talking about earlier, those people are from all around the world. And I mean, the good news is if you decide to take up Esperanto nowadays, you've found yourself like a truly niche hobby. I mean, forget homebrewing kombucha 
or beard waxing. This this is it, right? Oh my god, you could be so hipster and snooty. When anybody asks you what you did in the pandemic, you could be like, oh, well, you know, I learned Esperanto. You probably haven't heard of it. It's a, it's a really cool conlang. Imagine being the dickhead who goes into a restaurant and instead of asking if there are like vegetarian or, or gluten-free options, you're like, um, I can't read this menu. I actually, do you have this printed in Esperanto? Like, <laughs> can you imagine the kind of looks that you would get? I mean, you definitely get a lot more spit in your food. But yeah, you... If you decide to learn Esperanto and if you decide to sink 50 or 100 or 200 hours into this, you're tapping into a wider community, which seems to be going through somewhat of a resurgence. Um, A few years ago, Esperanto was added onto Duolingo. I believe there's a few other apps, including uh, one on Learn You, where you can pick up Esperanto. And especially like in light of the pandemic and a lot of people having a bit more time in their hands to engage in hobbies that they otherwise wouldn't have, I think it's kind of going through a renaissance period. People could argue that it's being somewhat diluted because the type of people who are getting into it are getting into it as kind of like a fun side thing, or maybe they've heard of Esperanto and they've heard it's a good way to learn other languages. These aren't necessarily the people who are learning Esperanto because they're trying to promote a global community or world peace. But I don't know. I mean, how much does that matter? I mean, I think Zamenhof probably would have been happy that more people were learning his language. I I think the ideology was the main thing for him, but he did just want to create community. That was his main goal, you know, was to create a safe place for people. Right. And you could look at it with so many other things that we consider to be like lifestyles nowadays. Um, Earlier, I was talking about people who work out at the gym. At one point, if you went to the gym, it's because you are a gym enthusiast, right? And and calisthenics. Yeah, precisely. Like having an evening constitutional or working doing manual labor isn't enough for you. So you're you're a real gym enthusiast. And now that's just so commonplace. It's so normalized. So do you think that Esperanto could become commonplace or normalized? See, this is the thing. I... I would probably argue no. As would I. Why do you think that's the case? I think it's the case because... The reason most people learn languages, and the reason why I have learned languages in the past, is because I want to travel to a place, I have lived in a place, or I enjoy the culture of a place. So I have been to lots of the places that I tried learning the language of. I enjoy partaking in, in media from different cultures, from different languages, and that's really a main reason for me to learn it. it. There's a motivation there of like, opening up a new world. Yeah, and I personally would agree, although I can see, uh, I've heard Esperantists argue against this idea that if you want to go to France, you should just learn French, because they would argue that, well, actually, like, I met French Esperantists, and they were the ones who kind of explained their culture to me through Esperanto, through our shared language, and I got so much closer to the culture uh, in a comparatively short amount of time than I would have ever done by just trying to learn French or just trying to learn Portuguese or just, you know. Um, I'm not here to take that away from you. If you are an Esperantist, like, there is a community there. There are people who can help you or, you know, you could go visit or go to different clubs. There's, like, a, a Chinese woman who traveled through different clubs in 
in the UK, I think, through Esperanto. Yeah. But for me, it doesn't really feel as though you are actually getting a feel for the culture itself. Yeah. You're not partaking. You are hearing secondhand. Yeah, I think it also comes back to something that we were talking about earlier. It's, at the moment, it's kind of like a hobbyist's thing. And something that you have to seek out, albeit a lot more easily now with the advent of the internet and apps than it would have been at one point in time. But like, you're not going to learn Esperanto for your work, right? You're not going to, you're not going to learn Esperanto to like secure a dream job, nor are you going to, not that you can learn a language by osmosis, like anyone who's lived abroad for a considerable period of time will tell you that firsthand. Oh, I am functionally illiterate in... uh... In Mandarin. Yeah. I'm not far behind you, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. But yeah, like it <laughs> it's very difficult to learn a language passively. Some would say completely impossible, but it, it can bolster what you are actively learning um, to have all of that in the background, to, ha- to have the radio on, you know, playing Spanish radio stations or to have like a Japanese newscaster kind of reading out the evening news or whatever in the background so that you're picking up bits and pieces. There are materials for that in Esperanto, but it's, you know, you're you're not going to walk down the main street of the capital city of the United Confederation of Esperantists and see billboards written in Esperanto, etc, etc. So at the moment, until it gets to like a tipping point where there's enough people on the globe who speak it, I think the only way it could really work is if, like, schools had instituted this as, like, a second language in a learning language program. And then you would have more people who would be like, oh, yeah, I speak a little bit of Esperanto. And, you know, kids taking their gap year or or whatever else or online chat groups or whatever speaking in Esperanto. In that case, you might see it create this kind of second global language. Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't think that's a trend that we're really seeing at the moment. Educators in the UK and the US, like, please get in touch with us if you disagree. Again, you can find us on uh, E-R-T-H, the pod at gmail.com. But... E-T-R-H, the pod. What did I say? E-R-T-H. Say it one more time. E-T-R-H. The pod (laughs) at gmail.com. Thank you. But please get in touch with us if you disagree. I think at the moment you're seeing parents become more and more involved in their children's learning at an earlier age, but with a a viewpoint that they're trying to get them into the best paying jobs in adulthood. And at the moment, something like Esperanto doesn't really fit into that, right? It's more impressive on a college application to see that, even to see something like, oh, you learned violin from a young age than something like, oh, you, oh, what what in the world is Esperanto? Like, I don't think you're going to be a good fit here at uh, Goldman Sachs. Hippie. Yeah. Get out of my office. But I think, I, d- I don't know how I feel at the end of this topic. I feel a little bit unsatisfied that it's Esperanto is such an interesting idea. When we were researching, we kind of like opened up this entire jar of worms that is conlangs, right? Constructed languages. And there are so many of them out there. If you are interested in conlangs, there is a fantastic... He's not YouTuber, but but he uh, is in videos. He's Eric Singer. He's a linguist. Oh, yeah. And he has incredible videos about 
language learning. Well, not language learning, about conlangs, about like pronunciation and all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, definitely check that out. And there are YouTube channels that are just devoted to conlangs uh, where people will review and, and kind of give their thoughts on these various different... Constructed artificial languages. Yeah. And I was trying to see if if there is a truly universal language out there, right? If Esperanto is truly like a bit Eurocentric or a bit sexist, etc., etc., then could there be something out there that is really representative as, of as many people alive today as possible? Now, um, one of my students' parents that we know mutually is uh, a linguistic professional. Hi, Stacey, if you're listening. And I asked for her thoughts on this, and she said that apparently in the linguistic community, this is a, a question that comes up a lot, and some people are just of the opinion that it's impossible to get a language that would be truly representative of like native Mandarin speakers, native Swahili speakers, native um, like Hebrew speakers, native English speakers. It's just not going to happen. Case in point, we speak a syllable stress-based language which is part of the reason why we find it so much harder to then go and learn a tonal language like Mandarin or Vietnamese or Thai. So how would that work, right? You can't just swap in nouns from one of those tone-based languages into a syllable stress language and just hope that it works. Not only that, but there are phonemes that exist in some languages that don't exist in others, which is why you have problems like with the all and r sound in in some Asian languages because they are often the same thing. They don't differentiate between sounds. What I found interesting when I was doing a linguistic course is that the m and p sound yeah. are the most common, one of the most common in the world, and that's probably why most people have similar words for mom and father because you get the mama, the baba. Yeah. Madre, all of these words are very similar because they're some of the first sounds that a child makes. Yeah. So there are phonemes that are common across languages, but as we develop, our palate hardens and it becomes harder for us to say sounds that are not in our native language. And again, this was something that our student's parent was talking about when she said that there are some people uh, within the linguistics community that theorize that your voice box the voice boxes of people who have come from a certain part of the world, they from different climates, they've evolved differently, which may be part of the reason why we don't have click sounds in our language, which would be so commonplace and so easy in some African-based languages. So the long and the short of it was when I talked to her about the prospect of like a truly universal language, probably not, probably not going to happen. That being said... AI is solving so many of our problems for us nowadays. Maybe someday it will rise up and kill us all. Who knows? But surely, if you were some technical whiz kid, you could write an AI algorithm that would take every single known language in the world and then crunch the numbers by how many people there are in the world look for cognates between those various different languages, look for very similar signs in those languages, and then spit out, okay, well, this is this is the average for all of those, and, and this is your new universal language, right? Could be, and if you are a, a whiz kid, and, or a whiz older person. Yeah, a, <laughs> uh, a whiz man. 
if you're a whiz man or a whiz woman, um, please do that and then credit us. Yeah, please give us a shout. Because we're the only ones who have ever thought of this ever. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that Esperanto is a great idea, and its purpose is so wonderful. But isn't it often the way it goes with things that are trying so hard to be better that yeah. they just fail? Yeah, it's like, look at this nice thing that we made for you. And then people come along and they're like, oh, I don't like that. Nice oh. things. Oh, Ugh. and this is why we can't have nice things. Uh, should we finish off with some weird facts? Yeah, why don't you go ahead. You want me to get weird first? Go on. I'll get, get weird. weird. All right. Uh, so I'm just going to uh, open my weird fact here. Um, did you know that you can travel the world for free with Esperanto? The Pasporta uh, Servo? Servo is described as a social network for Esperanto speakers who want to travel or are willing to host others. And I believe this has been going for decades now. It's kind of like one of the world's earliest couch surfing programs. Uh, so people who participate in the program uh, should be willing to house guests for up to three nights. It was founded in Argentina in 1966 by uh, Ruben Feldman Gonzalez for Esperantists who wanted to travel across the country. As of 2015, it has members in every continent uh, except for Antarctica. So sorry, Antarctic Esperantists. You will have to stay at home. Oh, but the penguins. Okay, so my weird fact is about, like, gendered nouns. So, obviously, a lot of languages have genders for every single noun. Looking at you, romance languages. Mm. Um, and this can actually color people's perception of nouns. For example, a study done in 2003 with native Spanish and German speakers asked the participants to list adjectives that were associated with gendered nouns. In German, key is masculine. Uh, well, in Spanish, it's feminine, la llave. A key was described, in, for German speakers, a key is described as hard, heavy, jagged, metal, serrated, and useful. But by Spanish speakers, with a feminine noun, it was described as golden, intricate, little, lovely, shiny, and tiny. I think I... Just really enjoy the idea of native German speakers holding that key in their hand and looking at it and thinking of words until they can't see anything apart from a rigid penis. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's useful. It's, uh, it's, uh, jagged. It's, it's uh, uh, throbbing. It's, uh, veiny. <laughs> it's, uh, got, uh, oh my god. Oh, but. But this, yeah, this is what we do when we apply genders yeah, to things, right? Yeah, I think right? the Spanish speakers probably just give it a little, little kiss at the end. Just a tiny. I love you. <laughs> yeah, just uh, fairy dust. But then you just thrown your key out into the garden. <laughs> oh, I need that. <laughs> oh, no, my key. Is that your spot? Okay. Yes, it is. Love it. It was excellent. Good job. All right, so uh, anything anything else you want to mention or plug at this time? Uh, just uh, find us on our Instagram and or, yeah. and or our Twitter. Yes. Um, I'm going to let you say it because I messed it up earlier. E-T-R-H, the pod. Thank you. That was for you guys, not for me. Yeah, please do hit us up there. If you could follow us, subscribe, leave a review, 
nice, not so nice, doesn't matter. We just need the nor- we just need the words. Yeah, uh, we just need validation. So um, constantly, love us, please. All right, guys, take care for now. We will catch up with you next time. Uh, bye bye. Enter the Rabbit Hole is written and presented by William Grant and Alicia Palmer. The music was created by Glenn Marshall. More information and sources can be found in the episode description. You can email us at etrhthepod at gmail or follow us on Instagram at etrhthepod. Thanks for listening.